This forum is part of the City Club's Health Equity Series, sponsored by the Sisters of Charity Foundation. We are grateful for their generous support. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here and a proud member. It's great to be here introducing today's Health Equity Series Forum, Believing in Home. When a family moves into an affordable home, it has the potential to transform lives. The stability of a permanent address means improvements to children's health, increased job opportunities, and the power to revitalize struggling neighborhoods. Yet, home ownership is inaccessible for many families. Historic policies like redlining are at the root of the wealth gap found in communities of color. This had led to common barriers to home ownership that many families face today. Barriers like expensive down payments and difficulty securing low interest loans. Now with the recent surge in housing prices, home ownership is further out of reach for many. Home ownership is often called the corner cornerstone of economic mobility. So how can we overcome these challenges families face to ensure it is more attainable to all? To answer this question, we are joined here today by Kevin J. Nowak, Executive Director of CHN Housing Partners, a nonprofit that both develops affordable housing and is a housing service provider. CHN Housing Network works with its partners to solve major housing challenges for low-income people and underserved communities. Also with us today is DJ Valentine, Vice President and State CRA Mortgage Sales Manager at Huntington National Bank. DJ Valentine works with communities, including low and moderate income neighborhoods, to meet the needs of borrowers in all segments. He has been with Huntington Bank for more than 20 years. Moderating the conversation today is Michelle Jarbeau, enterprise reporter at Crane's Cleveland Business. Michelle writes about real estate, economic development, among many other topics. Before joining Crane's in May, she covered real estate for the Plain Dealer for more than a decade. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming our guests today. Hi, everybody. It's good, though, surreal to be here. Um, I'm going to jump right in, and actually my first question is not about home ownership. Um, based on the news, late yesterday, the Supreme Court overturned the eviction moratorium, saying that the CDC overstepped its authority. Um, I'm curious about what you expect the impact of that to be in Northeast Ohio and across Ohio, and what conversations the housing community is already having about the impact on housing stability. Sure. Thanks, Michelle. Good to see everyone. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, uh, it was really serious, but I gotta just say, holy crap, it's, it's so nice to see everyone here. Um, so many friends, uh, people who have been kind of impactful in my own life. Um, you know, along the way, uh, it's really good to see all of you uh, in, in person. Um, so. I wanted to say that. Um, you know, when we look at the crisis that we've had since, uh, you know, March of 2020, it's been one where people are not able to get off the, off the, off the dime, right? You know, people lost their jobs. Um, people still aren't all the way back to work, 
Um, and whenever we've seen something like the eviction moratorium be threatened, um, this time now overruled or, or struck down, um, we've seen significant increases in the amount of people who are applying for rental assistance. Um, some of you may know uh, CHN runs the, uh, you know, in partnership with the city and the county, um, the, the local rental assistance, um, you know, program. It's at neorenthelp.org for anybody who uh, would be interested in checking it out. Um, every time we've seen uh, that threatened, we've seen a spike. We're now at over 9,700 families who have needed this assistance. And uh, that's, not, that's 39 million plus that we've deployed um, in partnership with the city and the county here locally. I see Councilman Bracatelli back there. Um, you know, the city and, and kind of just been really forward thinking in this. Um, it's not time to end, right? We are still in an emergency. Um, we still have dollars that we need to deploy um, and more dollars that have come down from Washington that we'll be able to deploy. Um, but we would expect there to be a, a pretty um, significant increase in applications. When we look at uh, what happened in August, there was a threat to the moratorium expiring, the moratorium expiring, a threat to a moratorium expiring, and now a moratorium that is not coming back. Um, in August, we saw an increase. We had 100 plus applications come in on August 2nd. Um, on average, we were having 60, and that's a day, right? Um, so it's not gonna end. We don't have the job done. Um, we need to continue working. What I would add to that, so the moratoriums could go on. I mean, it, it, it's up to Congress if, if they want to pass that. So, you know, that, that's point number one. And Kevin gave all the details around, you know, what's out there, what's available. I think the big picture that really concerns not only myself but others is that what we learned from COVID, being able to shelter in place or quarantine, uh, was huge to help, you know, sort of control it and slow down that spread. If, if we have this mass amount of evictions with, where folks don't have any place to go, um, I, I think, you know, from just from the pandemic standpoint, the impact that that could have. So, you know, hopefully we'll be able to work something out. We still have time. And for those who aren't aware of why the Supreme Court did it, uh, is just they felt that the CDC did not have that authority. Uh, to, to do the moratorium. So that's why I mentioned it, it would probably take an act of, act of Congress to get it done. So then big picture, back to the overarching topic we're talking about today. I, I'm curious about your thoughts on why home ownership matters so much, why you believe it should be broadly encouraged. Um, the national home ownership rate right now is about 65%, and there are a lot of people who are renting by choice. Sure. Why is home ownership so important? Sure. Um, I, I go immediately to three points um, that are the big picture points. Um, you know, the first of it being the American dream, right? We've, we've identified home ownership, that ability to create that nest egg, to be able to trans, um, transfer generational wealth from generation to generation as the American dream. Um, that American dream today, and we'll go, I'm sure, into more detail later, is out of touch, is out of reach for so many, um, even though you see home ownership at a decent rate today. Um, so, you know, we as a society need to continue to believe in ourselves and to strive for that American dream um, and to make it accessible for everyone. Um, the second is stability. When we think about housing stability, housing stability has a number of different impacts, right? So, um, mentioned a little bit in the, in the intro, the health impacts, um, tying it into you know, the, the health equity. We see families healthier, we see them achieving more. You see better outcomes for families when they have housing stability. When you see constant churn in the, and I know that the City Club has talked about eviction and the issues around eviction and that churn in evictions, 
what we see when you have that continual string and that lack of housing stability is children having less educational achievement. You see more people um, engaged in criminal activity. Um, homeownership really creates anchors within, within, for that family um, and for that neighborhood. Um, neighborhoods that have a higher degree of homeownership typically see uh, less crime, see higher values uh, for that neighborhood. So that, that, that's the second piece when we're thinking about it. Um, a third piece that we think about is wealth creation. So when you look as a homeowner, a homeowner uh, typically has 40 times more wealth than a renter. Okay, let's just, I mean, let's just think about that. All right, 40 times. And for a low-income family, it's 68 times. All right, so if some of you work in the key tower, and all of you are familiar with it, go down to the base of the key tower. I used, I used to work there and at Thompson Hine. Robin, Alan, everyone, good to see you. Um, and, you know, look up, all right? That's the difference. If you can see all the way to the top, that's the difference in the wealth for someone that is otherwise, you know, a renter versus a homeowner on average. Um, you know, so we, we really need to think about as a, as a society what we're doing um, to help to create that wealth. Um, and when we then begin looking at kind of disparities that we'll talk about later, um, we, we see equitable issues arise as well. DJ, did you want to weigh in on that from a lending perspective? Well, from a lending perspective, I think the biggest thing that uh, people really don't understand is a lot of times home ownership costs you less than rent. I mean, everybody sees what the rental prices are doing today, uh, and we'll talk about inventory later on. But you know, being able to have, to Kevin's point, not only just that generational wealth, but building that savings. Uh, what does that mean to a family? What does that mean for college education, especially in our black and brown communities? So if you take a look at, on average, you know, a 30-year mortgage, not in every case, uh, but in so many cases that that rent payment actually is going to be higher than what you would actually pay for a mortgage. So again, back to building wealth, it's just another avenue and opportunity. Yeah, if you, if you look at housing costs um, for the average renter versus the extra average homeowner, the average homeowner's housing cost is 16% of their income. The average renter's is 26, right? So just kind of start right there. Um, and as we've done the Believe Mortgage, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with Huntington, um, some of our very first uh, applicants and people who closed their deals were people who were renters who saved significantly um, by becoming a homeowner. Um, you know, one family, you know, it was, a, it was a single mom with two kids who had been a renter um, in a house, uh, and they bought the house from the investor from out of town. Um, their, their rent payment was $750. That went down to like $300. I mean, just think about the difference. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it creates a, a savings opportunity there. Um, it also saves that ability to be able to invest in the next generation. Um, for me, when I look at our family, blue-collar family growing up in Detroit, you know, we needed that equity within our home to be able to send me and my sister to college. That would have never happened um, if we didn't have available equity. And I would assume that for most people in this room and listening, that's the same case. Um, for people who aren't familiar with the Believe Mortgage, can you give a brief overview of that? Sure. Um, Believe Mortgage is a, is, a, is a first mortgage product um, that we created really to be an answer to gaps within the mortgage market. Um, so when you look at mortgage lending, um, there are significant gaps, uh, particularly for lower income people, um, for people of color. And CHN, um, in partnership with Huntington, really worked to try to develop a loan product. Um, and we'll get into detail about some of the issues with why it's difficult to deploy loan products later um, that tries to solve for that gap. 
So, so with those loans, you're particularly looking at people who might need to borrow $70,000 or less. Yes. Who, who may be buying very inexpensive homes, um, but they can't get credit for one reason or another. At least they can't get a conventional loan. That's correct. Um, I want to step back to talk about education because you both alluded to it a little bit. How important is homeowner education, bo both in terms of educating people about the wealth creation opportunities through homeownership, as well as educating them about how to maintain and stay in a home. I know that there are people who buy homes who don't think about things like the repair costs, mm -hmm. who don't think about, okay, I need to have a little bit of money set aside in case an emergency comes up, um, or who don't understand the mechanics of a mortgage. So, so how important is education and how do we better educate people? Um, so for anybody, understanding your investment that you're making in your home is critically important. Right, um, a number of us here in, uh, in in the audience, and I'm sure listening, provide home buyer education, um, financial capabilities counseling for people to really understand what that investment means for you. One of the things when we look at the market today is, you know, it, it's different even from five years ago. Is people not believing that they can even become a homeowner or that they should become a homeowner? Right. Um, so there's the tangible and intangible of home of, of home buyer education, financial capabilities. Part of it is. How do you budget? How do you plan for? Um, when we talked earlier about the, the uh, family that became a borrower, um, their net cost, even with uh, assuming maintenance costs, is cheaper than it is to be a renter. Um, so you know, as, as you just kind of, you know, kind of roll back and think about home buyer ed, um, it's something that no matter who you are, whether, it's, whether you're low income or you're high income, you need to know your investment. Um, and then as you think about ongoing costs and, and improvements, um, you know, in our community, we do have uh, homes that are, on average, were uh, developed before 1940. Um, and so, you know, we want to make sure that uh, as you are making those investments, you're aware of what, uh, what you're getting into um, and how to maintain those homes and, uh, you know, provide the support for people who may need some help. So how can we expand home, homeowner education here, whether it's first-time buyer education mm -hmm. or if it's existing homeowner education? What do we need to do financially? What do we need to do structurally? Structurally, I, I think, you know, it's, it's from a lending standpoint, I think the opportunity that, that we have is something I call giving a no with hope uh, or a no, not uh, just not right now. Um, I think as lenders, you know, if we have folks who are coming to us to want to buy a home, uh, but at that time may not be ready, are we taking that extra step to get to educate them about the home buying education processes that organizations like CHN and those offer? Um, so I'll use a lot of sports analogies today, I, I promise I will. Um, but you know, my college coach would always tell me, you play how you practice. And, and I look at home buyer education as, as that's the practice, that's the ease of mind uh, to, to give folks peace, because it's scary. Um, you know, a lot, there's, there's different barriers, and we'll talk about barriers. Uh, one of them actually is just someone being scared of what's next. Now I got this key, what do I do next? And I think being able to have that education up front makes that transition easier. But then also to Kevin's point around the maintenance piece of, you know, we're used to having landlords and the water heater goes out and someone just picks up the phone and calls somebody and it's done. Well, now that falls in your lap. So how do you prepare for those instances? So whether you're perfect credit, 20% down, you can have the same issues going into a house that someone, that someone else that's not as fortunate does. So I would recommend homebuyer education for all. For all. 
Um, so the national narrative around the housing market is really focused on escalating prices, lack of affordability, bidding wars, cash offers. We certainly have some of that going on in Northeast Ohio, but we also have a lot of very inexpensive homes. Um, I wrote a story about the Believe Mortgage recently, and the, the buyers I interviewed paid know, around $60,000 a piece for their houses. What makes it so tough to get owner occupants into those houses? So from a barrier standpoint or just from the... A barrier standpoint. So barrier standpoint, I think there's a ton of, there's external but individual issues. And if you take the external issue, uh, a lot of that is quality, quality is a key word, affordable housing in the communities that they prefer to live in. Um, so to the point of the narrative around, you know, we've, we've got these houses that folks could get at that price range um, they may not be habitable. So they can get them, but they may not be habitable. So having that quality, affordable housing, and I, I touch on the communities that they want to live in because that could factor into another external barrier to where if folks are wanting to buy homes, they're not available where they prefer, they have to go farther out, that becomes a transportation issue. So I think transportation is not talked enough in con conjunction with housing. Um, individual, uh, it's you know what you know. So for me, for example, you know, I was fortunate. I grew up, I proudly say I grew up in a low to moderate income household, but when I was young, my parents were able to buy their own home. So growing up, only thing I knew is you get older, you get a job, and you buy a house. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, and what my point about the you only know what you know, I think there's some environmental bias, if you will, that if you see grandma and grandpa, renting, mom and dad renting, that's what I'm supposed to do. So how do we break that barrier and that's through knowledge? Um, and then the big things, you know, the big elephants in the room is credit. Um, you know, not everybody's credit is created equal. So people have to understand how to obtain but also maintain their credit standards. And the last two that, that I'll bring up, and I'm hogging all the time from Kevin, is these two I think tied together. And we touched upon it earlier around debt to income. So if you look at today, a lot of folks are paying 50, 60, 70% of their monthly income on two categories, rent and childcare. Those two big things. So if you're looking at rent and childcare, you're basically living paycheck to paycheck, sometimes going above your means. But what do you need to buy a house? A down payment. So if you're living at that range where you're, you're spending all that high percentage on those two categories, you're behind the eight ball when it comes to that down payment piece as well. What about lending system barriers and, and how do we overcome some of those? I know we've sure. talked a little bit about the challenge of actually making these small dollar mortgages to get mm -hmm. people into that more affordable home ownership space. Sure. Um, so one of the things that DJ said earlier was sort of the concept of not yet, right? Um, and you know, we went from you know, before the Great Recession, a scenario where we said everyone should be a homeowner, to a scenario where we have people oftentimes first saying when someone says, hey, we should make homeownership a priority, you hear someone say, not everyone should be a homeowner. Like, where did we get, how did we get there, right? Um, there's a lot of scars from the Great Recession, but there is something to having that belief as a society and that, that, that we can improve our, our place in life, right? We can own a home, we can meet that American dream. So there's part of that that, you know, trans translated into 
federal legislation. Um, you know, when we think about Dodd-Frank and the safety and soundness and that, that has been helpful, it also, and those concepts, it also has put an extreme drag on the ability to have flexible lending standards. Um, if you look at home ownership, at, at, at the, if you look from 2004 um, to the present, um, you, um, you see this extreme decline, 42% um, in mortgage lending in Cuyahoga County. Um, and particularly when you look at those kind of lower income communities in a ring burbs overall, okay? There, there's a reason for that, right? Um, and and is it, it isn't about whether lenders are doing the right thing or not. Uh, it's, there's a big part about you know, what that federal legislation and the impact it has had. Um, when we look at you know, the credit standards, um, CHN as an organization uh, began lending in 2010 as uh, an answer because mortgage was no longer available. Right? A lot of you um, who are listening or are here know about our lease purchase program in the city of Cleveland. Right? Um, and, and in order for us to be able to help people to still be able to buy their homes, we needed to become the lender. Right? And, you know, we, and, and so many people then and still now um, have a hard time attaining credit score um, that is otherwise you know, re required. Right? Oftentimes, because of the square box that you know, the, the agents, federal agencies who back our um, mortgage system or, or, or CPFB has put in place. Um, you know, but when we look at CHN's portfolio of loans, um, we used something um, in, our first, in our first loan products called the equivalency principle. And that was if you have had a track record of paying your rent on time in full, and you've done it 12, 24, 36 months, you're gonna be able to pay that in mortgage, principal interest taxes and insurance. Um, and, our, and our original loan product we came out to support those families have supported that. And, and the losses that we've had, defaults in that, will match against any of the best you know, products, otherwise our agency products or that banks have on portfolio. So you know, as, a, as, a, as a lending community, we need to really be thinking about what's the best way to underwrite? Um, and are we using those correct standards? E even recently, one of the agencies uh, opened up some more of its um, kind of lending criteria to consider that payment of rent um, as, as being applicable to helping to, uh, to underwrite uh, a borrower. Loan officer compensation structures also have come up, though, as one of the issues with small dollar lending, mm -hmm. whether it's for a first mortgage or if it's for home repair. That's right. um, are there ways within the banking system to address that so that loan officers are not disincentivized from making small loans? Definitely. I, I think, well, we do it at Huntington. I can't speak for all, but I want to take a step back and, and just touch on one more lender barrier that we could probably have another city club luncheon over, and, and that's market values. Um, specifically in our low to moderate incomes, uh, income neighborhoods, um, issues, <clears throat> excuse me, around market values of, yeah, we may say there's homes there, um, but the cost of acquisition rehab generally outweighs what that market value is going to support. So that is truly a barrier that we have to, you know, really figure out in, in what we do. But from a lender comp compensation standpoint, you're right. Um, you know, a lot of folks may be commission driven, 100% commission is that's they, they go where their bread is buttered. Um, so they're chasing those higher deals. What we did at Huntington was formed community mortgage loan officers. So their setup is, is different that instead of you know 100% commission, you get basis points paid off of what you know, dollar amount it is, we pay them a base salary 
and then they have a flat commission on each home that they, they close upon. So whether it's a $10,000 home or a million dollar home, they're paid the same. And I think that concept, if we could adapt that concept across the lending uh, institutions, um, that would help uh, debunk some of that you know, myths around that, uh, people chasing the money. I, th I think we're seeing more of the nonprofits getting into the realtor space of where they're controlling um, their product from development all the way through sale and, and it, they can keep the cost down. Um, you know, like I think other opportunities like we do at Huntington is that, you know, if, if someone's purchasing a home in a low to moderate income track, the last thing they knew, need is additional closing costs put on top of there. So if, if they're buying a home in a low to moderate income track, what we've decided to do is we're lender paying those closing costs all except $500. Um, that allows them to have that down payment that's needed uh, that may not be what they had or capable of doing prior to that. If I could, if I could add to, if we look at on, from a from a bank non-bank perspective, it's you know it's not a, it's not a bank issue. It's not a and it could also be a non-bank issue. Is the return on capital for the organization itself right? It is not profitable for a bank to make a seventy thousand dollar loan. It is not profitable for a non-bank lender to make a loan at uh, you know that seventy thousand dollars or under. We are, you know, Seachin Housing Capital, our lending affiliate, is a non-bank lender, right? Um, the difference between what we do and what a bank does is that we can have kind of generous, you know, uh, kind of grants from, uh, from philanthropic organizations to help to fill our operations for that loan product, right? Um, and so, you know, and, and part of that has been, part of the reason why we have that standard is because we want to make sure people weren't being charged too much, right? Um, but, you know, there's unintended consequences of legislation, right? Mm -hmm. And when we say you can only charge so much for a loan, uh, it creates a barrier for people to be able to actually make those loans, whether it be compensation, whether it be the return on capital. Um, the, the other thing I guess I would add too, Michelle, when we're thinking about barriers is for whom are there barriers, right? Um, so when we look at what we're doing at CHN, we're always asking the, the why we're doing it, the, the, and, and then who are we serving, you know, where are we serving, really trying to understand, like, what is our intervention? What is the purpose of it? Um, what are we trying to accomplish? Are people being dis, uh, disparately impacted, disproportionately impacted in certain ways? As a nonprofit, I think one of our key criteria is that we're filling gaps that otherwise aren't being filled, and we want to work ourselves out of a job in that gap, right? We want to hope that either the market will take care of it, right? Um, or, or that, you know, uh, there would be regulation that would be changed that would otherwise allow for it to be filled, okay? So, you know, that's part of why we went into the lending piece, right? Um, and, and when we're thinking about who is seeing barriers, right, um, we can talk geographically and we can talk demographically, right? Um, you know, we see two times the decline rate for, for black families compared to white families, right? Um, so that's one, that's one thing that we look at. When we look geographically, right, um, you know, 15% of lending, 15% uh, uh, of home sales on the east side of Cleveland are financed by mortgages, okay? 80% are financed in the outer ring burbs, okay? Um, and when you look at who demographically lives in the east side, um, it's again, black families who are being disproportionately impacted here and not gaining access to capital. 
Um, you know, some of this goes all the way back to redlining, and, and if you look at the maps, right? Um, I don't think that there's redlining happening today by any of the banks that we work with, you know, at CHN. But you, what you look at is you, you see still these trends within these geographies that are continuing. Um, and, uh, and, and we need to figure out the way to solve for them, and that's why we started Housing Capital. So on the solutions front, um, I'm curious about your thoughts on the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act, because I know a lot of people in Northeast Ohio are watching that, and that's pending federal legislation that would essentially create a tax credit program to spur investment in new and rehabbed homes in struggling neighborhoods. How important is that to Ohio, and how likely do you think it is to become law? Likely, I hope, but if uh, how important, I would use two words and say game changer. Um, that act will solve a lot of things for a lot of people. Um, you know, it's going to provide some uh, private investment incentives, if you will, to, to work in the neighborhoods that we've been discussing this afternoon and really being able to help not only from new construction, but current owner occupants who are in those markets. And if you look at our issue now is there, the demand is there, um, the supply is not. And that's what this Neighborhood Homes Investment Act could help bridge that gap between that. So what it's also going to allow to do is, as we referenced earlier, around market values and the, the issues with the cost of construction versus what the home's going to appraise at, that's what this, these funds will cover. It'll cover that appraisal gap. So that allows us to go in and revitalize these neighborhoods. And, you know, it's, it's not by accident that you see the yard signs in our low to moderate income communities saying, we'll pay cash for your home. Um, there's tons of private equity funds that are out there, investors, to Kevin's point on his example, aren't local, um, that, you know, are coming in and taking a lot of inventory, and that's decreasing our supply. Um, not all landlords are created equal. Uh, there's some great landlords out there, for example, you know, that are local and know the communities. Thanks, DJ. Yes. <laughs> um, but, it, but, it, but if you take a look at the, the, the old problem of supply and demand, so now we have uh, lack of inventory, so that's driving up your rent costs. And they're not worried about evicting somebody because somebody else is waiting. So until we flood the markets with more supply that's going to drive down those rents, it's going to do a couple things. It's going to drive down the rents. Those investors aren't, aren't getting that return on investment. They are going to start dumping some of these properties, which I think is a good thing because that adds more inventory to the market. But with this Neighborhood Investment Act, we can increase that supply to where it's, they're going to have that direct competition. Again, you know, end result is going to be driving down that rents. Um, so I think, again, game changer would be the words that I would use. I, I would echo, uh, echo those words. And when we look at our, uh, our, our, our two uh, senators, uh, Senator Brown um, and Senator Portman, both of them are co-sponsors. Um, you know, they actually worked um, with, you know, with CHN, the city, CMP, to try to expand the the, uh, the tr census tracts to which that the the uh, tax credit would apply uh, and they did we'll call it the Cleveland uh, rule and the Cleveland expansion um, is that is that that was a direct result of those advocacy efforts um, you know and and when you when you are able to reduce that cost um, for making those improvements to the homes right um, and we're able to, and it, when it costs more to improve the home than what it's worth that's a problem 
right? Um, and so the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act would allow organizations like CHN, see Fumiko, Spurred Bell Car here, it would allow for us to be able to um, you know, redevelop these homes in a way um, that would otherwise provide affordable home ownership opportunities for housing stock that otherwise uh, would not be that. Um, the other thing on, on the markets that, you know, I know you, you talked a little bit about the, the market DJ, is there's a chicken and the egg thing that we have go on in, in, in the real estate market, right? So, you know, in order for a real estate market value to increase, you need to have, um, you need to have people interested in the market, right? And you need to see um, homes move, right? Um, most, you know, it, it, and when you look at the outer ring burbs, 80% of uh, home, home purchases are funded by mortgages, right? But if you look at the east side of Cleveland, you know, 15% are. People need mortgages in order to buy homes, right? Um, that's how we finance home ownership in our country. So if we don't have that um, available in the markets, you know, those mortgages available in the markets, we aren't going to see those markets increase. You aren't going to see people buying homes in those markets. Then you don't have values of the homes that you can otherwise leverage with a mortgage to be able to buy, for, uh, buy that home and um, have that home ownership opportunity. So I feel like there are a million more questions I want to ask you, but I know we're at the midpoint break, so I'm going to hand it off to Cynthia. Thank you, Michelle. Today at the City Club, we're listening to a forum about home ownership and the ways we can build and achieve equity in our neighborhoods. On stage is Kevin J. Nowak, Executive Director of CHN Housing Partners, and DJ Valentine, Vice President State of State CRA Mortgage Sales Manager at Huntington National Bank. We are about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our live stream or the radio broadcast on 90.3 WCP, or IdeaStream Public Media, rather. Now, if you have a question here in the audience, we ask that you first raise your hand to be acknowledged. Please wait in your seat until a City Club staffer motions you over to one of the two designated mic stands to ask your question. If you are unable to walk to the microphone, a City Club staffer will come to you. As usual, if you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, that's at the City Club, and you can also text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Supervising the microphones today are Alyssa Raybuck, Communication, Communications and Program Innovation Manager, and Tiffany France, Member and Outreach Manager. May we have the first question, please? Uh, good afternoon. Um, the City of Cleveland, uh, Cleveland School District has a program called Say Yes, in which students are able to uh, get scholarships to go to college, and they can graduate without having those horrible loans that so many people have. And because of that, I was wondering if there's any opportunity for you to talk to high school students about how important home ownership is. Uh, since when you talk about breaking the barrier of generational renting, um, it seems like that would be a good place to start where they can actually see themselves as homeowners in the future and possibly begin saving for it. Absolutely. You want to go? Yeah, I, I'm just going to So we, we partner with a lot of organizations now that do that. We have a program that we call Reality Days, um, where we actually go out to the schools, elementaries, on up through, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Junior Achievement, but this is more tailored toward what's reality. And you know, it's a budget program where we talk about the home ownership, um, you know, utilities, what they can expect, and you know, sort of how do you budget for it and do that. 
Um, you know, if you have schools in mind, we'd, we'd love to partner and, and do more of them. I mean, we'll do them all day. So there is things, and, and I think, you know, from the knowledge perspective that we were talking about earlier, um, a lot of banks do that, not just Huntington, and, and I don't think that the community knows what all resources are out there. Um, so we could do a better job. You know, that's something that we could do a better job, but we do have those programs. Uh, we do a lot with faith-based communities as well and do some financial literacy programs. Um, so we're more than willing to do it. Absolutely. Same thing, same thing for CHN. I mean, when we approach our work, we're really trying to take a two-generational approach. Um, and you know, working closely with the school district in some ways already, um, and you know, for us to be able to reach the the youth to be able to understand that value of home ownership, um, you know, I've had close friends who families, you know, have been you know generational re renters, right? Became more familiar with CHN, um, saw that value in home ownership, and took that step. Thank you. Mm -hmm. thank you. Hi, um, a couple quick questions, Councilman Tony Brancatelli, um, and certainly thank you, one of our partners in, in, in our neighborhood, uh, Huntington. Um, looking at uh, ARPA dollars that are coming in, um, there's been a number of wonderful programs already set up in the city. The former community development director, Tanya something, um, created this gap financing that was out there, and uh, I know uh, Sharon Posner of Third Federal helped bridge the gap in Trailside, and as you mentioned uh, uh, about the gap between marketing and value, um, how do you see uh, uh, ARPA dollars fitting into the equation of providing more affordable housing? When we look at, we have thousands of vacant lots and maybe doing some infill product. Um, do you see that as a tool that could be used? We, sh we should probably jump in here and just say that the ARPA money, for those listening who might not know, is the federal economic stimulus money that's flowing to Cleveland, Cuyahoga County, a variety of communities, and two tranches this year and next year. Yes. So whoever wants to jump in. Councilman, great to see you. Uh, how much time do you have for the answer here? Um, we'll follow up. Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> um, you know, when we're thinking about the use of, of ARPA dollars, um, you know, we have a once-in-a-generation opportunity, and it seems like we've said that a lot over the last, like, you know, decade or so, um, but it really truly is. How many times do you have dollars that are as flexible as what these are um, that can be used in, in creative ways, right? Um, one of the things that I would say is there's oftentimes the look for ARPA of trying to find the new and shiny thing, right? When there's basic blocking and tackling that we have to address, right? Part of that is the home, is home ownership we're talking about today, right? Um, utilizing a portion of this money, I, I know there's been conversations, you know, at, at the city, there's been conversations at other cities that we work in about how can we utilize this? How can we maybe create a, a loan loss reserve, which is a way to uh, help um, lenders to be able to bring capital if they're unsure about the, the credit worthiness of a borrower. Um, how can we actually have lending capital available that could be used? Um, you know, how can we bring it for down payment assistance? One of the things that I know DJ mentioned earlier, down payment assistance. Um, down, pay, you know, down payment assistance is, is, a, is a pool of money that otherwise can allow for someone who can't bring the down payments um, that they need uh, to the table to close on a mortgage uh, to be able to close on that mortgage because it helps to, it helps to fill that gap. Right. Um, when we look in our community and think about just the city of Cleveland um, and our population, there's if you look at the black population, there's 10 times less wealth in the black population than in the white population. Right. Um, you know, an average 171,000 versus 17,000. Um, you know, and, and so it's even harder for our community, our, our communities of color, particularly our black community, to be able to bring dollars to the table for closing. ARPA allows for that. Right. Um, uh, home repair. Right. 
home repair we talked about earlier, the need to, you know, for home repair, right? You can use ARPA dollars for day-to-day -day blocking and tackling home repair, right? Um, to help those seniors that otherwise can't fix the home. They've been on a fixed income. Miss Smith, who's been down the street from you, who's lived in that house for 30 years, is on a fixed income, right? A lending product may not be suitable and likely won't be suitable for her, right? But, you know, for us to be able to use ARPA dollars to fund part of that, or you know, be able to use ARPA dollars to be able to fund a pool that would otherwise allow for some to be grants, some to be loans. Um, you know, again, there, there's an opportunity for us to be creative and flexible, but not look for the new shiny thing and forget about every, all the other blocking and tackling that's right in front of us. So for the record, Kevin obviously has been looking at my notes. <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope this meeting is being recorded. Um, but yeah, he nailed it. And, and I think if you take a look at housing especially, um, think of it like an ecosystem where, where you know, there's, there's things that happen in this ecosystem. If one is off or one doesn't happen, uh, it could throw the whole system off. And I think that's where ARPA can come in to Kevin's point, you know, number one, you know, not just the eviction moratorium, the lending, the foreclosure moratoriums are ending too. So, you know, what is that landscape going to look like going forward? And, you know, we could talk about affordable housing and building housing, which is definitely needed, um, but we got to maintain folks who are already in those homes. And I think ARPA funds can help with that. Um, so what's that landscape look like? So that's part of the ecosystem. But if you look at our CDFIs and CDCs, and I'm saying this as a banker, um, their biggest challenge, you know, so we have these homes, this inventory that's in these neighborhoods that people say is vacant or blighted. There's organizations who are willing and capable of going out and doing this acquisition rehab. Um, their problem is access to capital, to Kevin's point. Um, that could help assist with that, you know, whether it's subsidies, either developer subsidies or the back-end subsidies of getting the right folks into these homes with the down payment assistant, assistance. So again, you know, it's, it's just a big ecosystem that I don't think you can address one thing in that system. It's, you'll have to touch three or four different buckets uh, to really make that neighborhood thrive and vibe. And at the end of the day, what it does is it raises those market values, so those gap subsidies get smaller and smaller and smaller as those, the, the value of those neighborhoods come up. If I could, too, just send one more follow-up that I think is really important you, with the ARPA you, dollars. Oh, let me see, what did you put there? Okay, yeah. uh, I was just looking at DJ's notes again. Um, so, you know, federal money is critically important and is, and is part of the tranche of dollars that we use as a community development community to try to address housing issues. Right, um, you know, and this is a huge inflow of that. Right, um, one thing that we need to not do with ARPA is to make it the same as uh, treat it the same as all that other money, home and CDBG. Right, home and is the home investment partnership and community development block grants um, are great sources. Right, but they at the same time are incredibly difficult to use. Um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to change that here. Um, you know, over the next couple of years uh, at the federal level, um, but they're incredibly hard to use. Right, so let's not you know, say uh, this CDBG program is great, let's use the same rules we did for CDBG for, for ARPA, right? And, and then secondly, again, you know, we, we've, been, we've been, as a lot of you know, we've been developing a lot of new programs before, you know, me before the pandemic and we didn't stop during the pandemic, right? Um, but, you know, one of the things we also need to not forget is that, you know, we need local solutions and for all this work to be sustainable. Um, so this federal money provides us an opportunity to build, to build scale, to bridge 
and then make sure that our priorities are where they need to be to support a healthy housing ecosystem and home ownership locally. We've got someone patiently waiting at the mic over here. Yes, I just wanted to ask you really quick, uh, tailcoat on what Dan was saying earlier, we're gonna be seeing a lot of refugees come in this way. Do you think their need for housing might throw the spotlight on these problems and get them addressed sooner? I'll take the first stab at it. You know, I so I think the need for housing is great now, you know, and I think that's going to just exasperate the problem. To Kevin's point around federal policy, and, and so our state and local governments get this pot of money, if you will, for example. Um, I, I think that there needs to be more conditions on the money that comes in, to Kevin's point around the CDBG, um, to be able to tackle events that happen, you know, such as, you know, if, if the refugee, if refugees come. So with those policy changes, I think we could tailor it more to be more specific of what the use of those funds are for. So, you know, have a, a section in there around affordable housing or affordable rental units, uh, but also, you know, incentivize somehow from a state and local level coming in from the federal level, you know, what are we doing if this what-if scenario pops up or who, whoever has a creative repurposing land use, for example, what are you doing with your vacant blighted areas? You know, if, you, if you're creative, we like the idea and it's getting us where to be, then incentivize them by giving housing grants. And, you know, those type of things, again, I think, you know, it's, it's not just all local. I, I think that from a global perspective, um, Kevin's the expert on the local, but you know, from a federal standpoint as well, policy has to change. Yeah, and you know, when we think about, there's two things I'd, I wish I would comment on. Um, one is there's no slack in the system, right? Here locally, our affordable housing supply um, is is zero. There's no there is there is supply, but there is no excess supply. Yeah, probably negative. Right? It's probably negative. It is negative. I actually, we have shortfall probably by about like. 40% of what we need. Mm -hmm. um, so when we look at it, we say, okay, you know, when we have an event happen like what's happening in Afghanistan, right? When we have something like someone, you know, um, being poisoned with lead and needing to find a new place to live, right? Um, we have limited to no dedicated housing stock for that, um, you know? Um, and so that's something that we as a community should be, should be thinking about ways to invest in. ARPA may be one way to do it. Um, Go ahead. Hi. Um, I wanted to say, first of all, Mr. Valentine, that credit is not the big elephant. Um, redlining, so, um, structural racism, all of that is a big elephant. Many times when I come to meetings like this, I feel like you're talking to not the people I serve. I live in the central area. I work with Susan Cray as a Central Promise Ambassador. Before we can get to home ownership, most of the people in my area need to believe in the American dream. We no longer believe in it. That is for us. When you are situating and making these programs, please look at that. My, my work, my real work is about reinventing our community. It's also about helping people reinvent themselves. 
I myself have um, come to a point in my life where I want to try home ownership. Nobody answers your phones at CHN. Okay, nobody at um, the county land bank. That gets frustrating. You have to do your day-to-day -day stuff to keep living while you're waiting on the phone to be answered. Keep all of this in mind while you're reconstructing your programs. Thank you. If I, I could just follow up yeah, really yeah, quick. Go right I, ahead. You know, I, I think just a couple of things. Let's follow up after the call because I would like to get your contact info so we can follow up on, on the issue that you have. Um, you know, the second thing is, as, as we were thinking about housing capital and we think about how we do our business, one of the things that CHN has really tried to look at is what are those barriers for people, right? And, and a, a part of our goals as an organization and part of our thought philosophy is thinking about racial equity, diversity and inclusion. And so, and we actually created housing capital um, as a way to try to address one issue which is that lack of um, you know, mortgage lending in, you know, in you know, African-American communities. Um, it's within our very purpose statement. Um, and so I think as we, as we organize around it and as we try to deliver our, ser our services, we absolutely need to be engaging with the community to make sure that we are doing it in the best way we can. Yeah, and real quick, for me, I, number one, I apologize if my comment came off wrong about the elephant in the room. I, I meant that that's you know, some, one of the big issues that, that a lot of folks are facing. You know, I will say, I think, can you hear me? Um, if you're looking at, so number one, we acknowledge redlining. I think everybody in here would definitely do, and it's been de detrimental, uh, the impact it's had, especially on communities of color. Um, I will say, with, to your point about you know, the belief system and, and actually understanding that it can be done, so we're currently partnering with the MBA, so the Mortgage Bankers Association out of DC, and talking about a, a program that they're calling Convergence. And Convergence is solely dedicated to African-American home ownership. So how do we create, is it changing policies? Is it defining new products, new structure? But also the education piece is, is a component of that. And I personally am on a, a national uh, committee that we're working with the OCC. It's called Project Reach, and it's bringing all the large uh, uh, financial institutions together, as well as tons of nonprofits. Uh, again, specific. So the category I'm on is expanding affordable inventory for African American home buyers, and that's the process. And the feedback you gave us is is excellent. I mean, that's the stuff that we're discussing. And you know we can we can go out and do things onesies and twosies. Community's not going to see that impact. Um, then you know did it really help? You know or, or is it too vast? Is it scattered? We're talking about how do we scale this? Make this nationally scalable, and and that's when you get the private investment as well, as well as the public cooperation uh, to fund a lot of these programs to address the issues that you were just talking about. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up very much. Thank you. Hello, I'm Sherry from Cleveland Neighborhood Progress. Um, kudos to CHN um, and its work, and, and, and again, its equitable underwriting process that captures um, positive rent payment. A few years ago, you, pilot, you piloted an effort to report rents to the credit bureaus. Mm -hmm. Where have those 
efforts gone since then. And then also I wanted to just highlight CMHA and its family self-sufficiency program to which rents are, portion of the rent are, are put in escrow for, for them to save for asset building. Um, have you had any conversation with CMHA about replicating such a program? If so, where have those conversations gone? Sure. Um, so I guess a couple of things. One, you know, when you look at uh, rent, when you look at um, you know, reports to a credit agency, um, you know, there are certain things that you would uh, that you would report to them, you know, as a lender, for example, right? And rent hasn't something hasn't been something that's always been something that is, uh, a uh, factor that has been reported to credit agencies, right? Um, but there are ways to be able to report positive rent history. Um, it's something that we're continuing to do um, because what that allows for someone to do is to begin to build up credit. And there's even now some agencies like Fannie that are considering that positively as part of the underwrite. Um, Sherry, thanks for calling that out because that is something that's, that's really important. Um, and, and a real way to be able to tell whether a potential borrower is going to pay. If they've paid you know, uh, that, and they've paid their rent, and they've paid it consistently, they will continue to in a mortgage. Um, that previously has not particularly been paid attention to um, in, in traditional mortgage lending um, as a determining factor. Um, you know, a, a second thing when we're thinking about um, rent credits, uh, it's something yet, yes. Um, when, you know, could rent be credited in the family self-sufficiency model? Absolutely. Um, most of our housing that's, uh, that's developed through locum housing tax credit um, would not allow for that sort of um, escrowing because, uh, you know, for, for tax, from tax perspective. Um, but, you know, in a uh, housing development where you're thinking about, okay, is this going to be an opportunity for someone to either save and then move elsewhere and buy a home? Um, or you are going to have a rent-to-own model that is uh, kind of a private market rent-to-own model. Um, you know, allowing for someone to be able to um, save that money um, in escrow, uh, almost kind of like a forced savings, right? And then you know, use that as a down payment is a great best practice. Um, the work that CMHA has done in that, in that space is, is actually nation-leading. If I could add to that, I think it's September 18th that Fannie's actually mm -hmm. making mm -hmm. those changes. So, you know, where the rent is going to, and that's going to be huge. Um, so if some of the stats that I've seen, and if, if you look at how many thousands of loans Fannie has on a daily basis, they estimate just that change in the rental piece would have approved 17 more percent of their loans that they had applied through them. That's a big number. Big, big number. Um, but I think it's, it's a start. There's, there's still needs. So Fannie and Freddie all have these duty to serve, these new concepts, initiatives that they're talking about. And they are doing a wonderful job exploring how do they enhance their products. So something that we do that I would love to see the GSEs as well as, GSEs, I'm sorry, I meant Freddie and Fannie, um, as other institutions does, is how do we approach alternative credit? So if we have folks who have not established those three trade lines that are needed, um, it, it almost feels like they get penalized for not going out and running up credit cards. So how do, how do we take the alternative credit routes, and again, we have programs that we do use that, and use that to compensate for that lack of credit that they have. So we're getting, we're getting ready to get yelled at. <laughs> no, so as, as TJ noticed, uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time. I'm sure there's a lot more that we could talk about, but I'm going to hand it off to Cynthia to close it out. Thanks, Michelle. Today at the City Club, we have been listening to a health equity series forum about home ownership and the ways we can build and achieve equity in our neighborhoods. 
On stage is Kevin J. Nowak, Executive Director of CHN Housing Partners, and DJ Valentine, Vice President, State CRA Mortgage Sales Manager at Huntington National Bank. Moderating the conversation today was Michelle Jarbeau, Enterprise Reporter at Crane's Cleveland Business. Thank you so much for joining us today. We also welcome guests at tables hosted by Burton Bell Car Development, Inc., CHN Housing Partners, Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, Councilman Tony Bracantelli, Famicos Foundation, Huntington Bank, Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, Sisters of Charity Foundation of Cleveland, and Thompson Hine. We're very happy to have you here. Be sure to join us next Friday, September 3rd, as we welcome Jamal Green, professor, at law, professor of law at Columbia Law School. He is the author of the book, How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. He will talk about how our country's fixation on individual rights is dividing America and how we can build a better system of justice. Tickets are still available for this forum, and you can purchase them and learn more about our other forums by visiting cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Kevin, DJ, and Michelle, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.